This is the Monday, November 5th, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine returns to the Great War's trenches and views them through the eyes of a pilot in the very early days of U.S. air power. Our guide on this journey is Patrick Gregory. He's here to bring us An American on the Western Front, the First World War Letters of Arthur Clifford Kimber, 1917-18. Patrick co-authored the book with Elizabeth Nurser, Arthur Clifford Kimber's niece, and also Patrick's mother-in-law. The result is a true family labor of love, bringing a man who was just one of many doughboys to life because he left behind a unique record, not only from his perch high above the worst of the fighting, but down in the trenches, a worm's-eye view, to go with the eagle-eyed view up in his plane. Although he wasn't a big name in the war, he did have one distinction— He carried the first official American flag over to Europe. We'll find out where that flag is today when we chat with Patrick. Patrick Gregory spent most of his career as a journalist at the BBC, working 20 years at Westminster, London, as a news editor and then managing editor of the BBC's political programs department, covering six prime ministers and seven general elections in that time. Before then... Patrick worked as a news producer during historic moments, such as the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reshaping of Eastern Europe and Gulf War I. He's also helmed a number of political and history documentaries and worked in journalistic democracy-strengthening initiatives in the Asia-Pacific area. You can enjoy more of the U.S. World War I story he's sharing today online at AmericanOnTheWesternFront.com or on Twitter at American on the WF. Okay, now that we've boarded the transport headed over there, let's join Patrick Gregory and meet an American on the Western Front. I'm joined via Skype from the UK by Patrick Gregory, co-author of An American on the Western Front. The First World War Letters of Arthur Clifford Kimber, 1917 to 1918. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. It's a pleasure. Delighted to be with you and then anyone listening, wherever they're listening. Well, the great thing is we can not only listen to each other now, but we can get stories from 100 years ago, thanks to books like An American on the Western Front. The cover of the book is the first thing that strikes you, which is as it should be, you're fortunate and you have somebody who's telegenic but also engaging. Arthur Clifford Kimber's face takes up that whole cover and you feel as if he's going to speak to you. And it's something that I've noticed in a couple of great war books lately that 
These men, it's not that they have the thousand-yard stare, but they seem so engaging. They don't seem off-putting, and they don't seem guarded or showy or any of the things that you compare modern pictures to. They they have a real unique look about them, and when you pick it up, if you're a reader, he's asking you to open it and hear his story. You want to meet this young man. You want to find out what his experience is in the Great War and what becomes of him. How did you choose that image for the cover? And as the co-author, what do you see when you meet that young man's gaze? Well, first of all, in terms of the photographs, he left behind a large collection from 1917 and 1918 of photographs that uh, uh, he took himself in France or he would get other of his comrades to take, sometimes of him uh, in action or standing in a flight field or whatever in France. But possibly about 300 images in total, some of which we've got on our website, some of which I've tweeted out at different times for different particular either anniversaries, uh, centennials or whatever. But in the case of this, this is him in his first lieutenant's uniform of the US Air Service. And this would have been taken sometime after March of 1918. He's very proud in this. You see other photographs of him where he's got a lovely engaging smile and there's a certain shyness at some stage or self-consciousness at some stage in some of these photographs are just normal, the kind of photographs that would be in your family album. In the case of this one, he's just staring down the barrel. I think there's the pride in the uniform, the pride in the service, and there is it's unwavering, unblinking and staring at you, not quite staring through you in that scary sense, just staring right at you. And I felt, as you felt, that that was the image that was going to possibly call out to us from a hundred years ago. And these are photos in your family album. You said that they're like they are. So that's something where you look at pictures sometimes for instance, when my grandmother passed away at 104, and you look, you find some pictures that she left in a drawer. You don't know who those people are. You can maybe see a little bit of a family resemblance, but unless we write it on there, unless we share the story, there are so many of those photos that we'll never know the story behind those people. It's fortunate here that we are able to get this story and that it's such a unique one. The quote on the cover by Andrew Marr, he uses the word astonishing, astonishing new light that it shines on what we thought we knew about the First World War. I wanted to mention something up front, since for the trained ears out there, they probably vaguely detect that you don't have an American accent. So how did you come to write this book? Yes, eagle-eared of you, as uh, <laughs> as it is. This accent hails originally from Ireland, although I've lived and worked in London for all of my adult life. I've been a, a journalist with the BBC during most of that period. And the Americanness in this regard comes from Elizabeth Nurser, who is an American who came over to the United Kingdom back in the 1950s as a Fulbright scholar to do her history PhD and met and married the man she loved, settled down, had children. And in her later years, in her early to mid 80s, I got together with her to look over the old letters of a relative of hers, an uncle, 
who was a US serviceman in World War One, because at that stage we were approaching what would be the beginning of Britain and France's involvement uh, against uh, Germany and the other powers in 1914, 2014 anniversary. And it would be some years beyond that, the United States in 1917, 2017 would become involved. But I said, there's no time like the present, surely we ought to do something. It wasn't a hard sell to Elizabeth because she'd been thinking exactly the same for many years herself, but it was a question of getting down to it and uh, trying to get a book out of it because we felt that there was such a complete archive that to tell half a story wouldn't be good enough or to dribble it out in the space of a few articles here or there wouldn't be sufficient that it actually merited a full outing. Elizabeth, for her sins, also doubles as my mother-in-law. That's her lookout. But she was a, a, a wonderful person to work with throughout all of this because as an historian and somebody who in her career worked in publishing as an editor, she was the most wonderful writing companion of all because anything I wrote, she would be able to proof and correct and send back to me in minute detail. And so it was a meeting of minds and, I hope, a complement of skills along the way. It's some writing companion to have, and it's some team. The origin of an American on the Western Front is unlike any other book, and maybe it's all those 50s, 60s classic sitcoms that I watched, but I can't imagine writing a book with my mother-in-law. I wrote a cookbook with my wife, and that that was a challenge at times to get to get through that for us, frankly. It's because it's hard to collaborate sometimes, but I do love to do that. I loved collaborating with her on that book. I love to work with people. I love to interview authors like yourself. Elizabeth Nurser has those pictures. That's a, a key part of it. When you come on the scene and you decide that you're going to pursue this project, part of it has to be narrowing those down and going through them and make those support the story of this young man and of his service. How did you go about that part of the collaboration beyond the words? The pictures really were there, in truth, as an adjunct to the words. We wanted to use them illustratively. They were powerful. They were, in some cases, graphic when you see the lines of dead German soldiers, for instance, um, uh, in the ground around Verdun in the in 19. 1917 summer period when they were trying uh, yet one more counteroffensive. You get those kind of, of images which really do kind of jump out at you. But for the most part, they were there supporting the narrative that we were telling. So it was a question of getting that narrative in good order. And Arthur Clifford Kimber, Clifford to his family. Arthur was his Sunday name or was his uh, official name. He had an agreement with his family when he left California in uh, late April of 1917 that he would write long and detailed letters because he was conscious of having a record of the war that he would be able to return to after the war and that would serve the basis of memoirs either then or in his later life. Uh, he would write as he saw First of all, America, as he traversed America by train, and then the Atlantic, and then going through England to France, and then to the front. And he wanted to write everything in detail, send it back to his mother and two brothers in Palo Alto in California, 
and have them type these letters up. And that is something that he did. That's something which happened. Curiously, it is the largest complete archive of its type that we are aware of, some 250,000 words. He wrote letters, uh, 160 in all, at a rate of two or three a week, every week, for 18 of the 19 months of U.S. involvement. They were numbered, these letters, from 1 to 160, so that if anyone, any were lost in transit, he would have either a duplicate or an Ed memoir of his own. He knew the bits that he wanted to or would have to fill in. But in fact, all 160 did reach Palo Alto. All 160 were typed up. So our starting point, we had the originals, we had the typed up version, but trying to get them into an electronic editable form of text was the, the first major hurdle. You know, we we're dealing with 100-year-old type. It was on gossamer-thin paper, trying to get a software program that would properly read this text and capture it was the first hurdle. And this is something that Elizabeth put a lot of time, effort and skill into in getting this done and then correcting the text because there would have been, well, there were many errors would crop up at this stage, 2013, 2014, but there are many errors made at the time in the transcription of these typos or whatever. And so that was, that was the, the first hurdle to get around or over. So that was where her skill as an editor came in. Where I came into it then was in writing the narrative, the governing narrative around this, and then choosing the passages that I would edit from the letters. We weren't attempting in any way, shape or form to just publish everything. It was a question of trying to give an edited form and a flavor of each and every one of the 160 letters beginning in California and ending the night before his death in the autumn of 1918 in France. By the way, that's not a plot spoiler. We know that he dies on page one of the book. And it's a question of then, as it were, filling in what we know from the moment of his death. But what I was then focused on was trying to write a narrative that told both his story and told the wider picture, the wider context of the United States conflict to try to put that into a form that was going to be usable and understandable by people so they had some locus for him and also some context for the United States role at the time. I wanted to ask you, we talked about the front cover and I'm going to talk throughout the book about this evolution of his service and how it reflects the U.S. involvement in the war. But it struck me that the picture on the front that we just discovered is posed. He's in his uniform. He's spit and polished. His hair is brushed neatly. Then you look at a picture of him on the back and he's standing next to his plane. He has the goggles up. His, his bangs have gotten longer. He's just a little crumpled, has those boots that look like they, they're probably a little muddy. 
the main detail is that scarf. He has that big aviator scarf that today we wear just for fashion. Give us some of that insight from his letters. Describe what it was like for him flying up there because as hot as it might be down on the ground, up there he talks about being cold. He talks about his nose running. And I thought he must really have needed that scarf. That just looks the way it's around his neck. is It's something he's he's put there jauntily, yes, but it's something that serves a function. So describe how that would be for him and what the experience of flying is in these very early days. It was very, very challenging. He was doing his basic and advanced training in the autumn and winter of 1917 going into 1918, and it was bitterly cold. We're talking there about open cockpits. Uh, We're talking about, yes, flying goggles, but little else around the face. We're talking in the days before they supplied the men with the, uh, 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 the teddy bear jackets. Almost anything that could give any form of warmth at all, they were putting on. They're putting on whatever long underwear they could. They're putting on jumpers and cardigans. They're putting on balaclavas. They were putting on hats. They're putting on mufflers, scarves, anything they could get their hands on. Sweethearts and charitable institutions like the YMCA would be sending stuff abroad to the US troops and they would be putting on anything they could. They really needed it at these altitudes, because at times he may have been going up to 6,000 feet doing higher altitude training, and this is in the depths of winter. There's one extract from a letter where he says, The morning's flying was the coldest I've ever been through. One boy froze his nose and another his right cheek. The former rubbed snow on to thaw it out and took the skin off. If you have a slight cold, flying in weather like this makes your nose run like a fountain, and that provides a lot of freezable matter. (laughs) My feet were like ice. On the ground, they were first cold, then felt warm. A bad sign, so I had to jump up and down till they got cold again. In the air, they were numb. It is high time that Uncle Sam supplied us with the promised flying clothes. You know, I think so spoke all of them. Um, I think that they were, they found it as exhilarating, as exciting, as challenging, as a wonderful an opportunity as it was for these young daring men to get into their wonderful flying machines. Nonetheless, we actually have to think of things like this, the physical hardships that they had to endure along the way. That's the human part of what makes you want to read this book and why it's great that this picture of him is so engaging on the cover of an American on the Western Front because he is just a person. They're different and they're in black and white and they don't have Instagram accounts or Twitter feeds. Well, he does actually, thanks to you. He has (laughs) American on the WF, is it? It is exactly that, American on the WF for Western Front. And that's a place that I will post bits and bobs about my friend Kimber, but also more generally telling on a daily basis or near daily basis the conduct of the war from an American point of view. So I try to do little bits and bobs, gobbets of information. So talking through various battles and kind of key protagonists or key units. And we're recording 
recording this at the minute um, in the, the summer of 2018, so I'm reflecting on what's going on a century ago. So we've been through uh, recently the, the uh, Battle of Bellow Wood uh, in uh, June of 18, and in July of 18, Battle of Soissons and the Ain-Marne Offensive, Counter-Offensive, which is the beginning of the turning of the tide. And so I'll be doing, posting little bits of information and also articles that I will write, trying to explain to a US predominantly, but also to a world audience, some of the inside story of the Americans in World War One, because it's an undercooked story. It's one that I want more people to know about, because sadly, not enough people do. Definitely, for sure. Here, I know that because we think about World War II. I usually compare it with all due respect to the first two Star Trek movies. So that first one didn't hold people's interest. They don't go back and watch it a lot. It was it was there and they, they know a little about it. But then you get the second one and you have a great villain. And so a big set piece story to tell. And it's very clearly good versus evil. Also, because the Great War is just... So much tragedy, so much death and dying and suffering, and so much betrayal, so much bad treatment on both sides. And it's hard to look at that. You want to just look away from it. Because in the Second World War, I I don't have any moral ambiguity. I think that's part of it. And also that not only did this generation of men die and not get to write those memoirs that Kimber planned to write, but by the time 20 years had passed and maybe you were running your hands through your thinning hair and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell what my war was like, bam, you're right in the heat of World War II. So many of those same men were going off and fighting and people didn't want to hear about the last war. They were in the thick of fighting for survival with this one. And there were many factors, disappointment, you know, shame about how they had, how they had meted out justice or not meted it out to the fallen, beaten Germany. Also, frankly, the planes. We don't have the cool planes that we have in the Second World War, much less today. You were, you were talking about seeing one of Kimber's era planes side by side with the SR-71 Blackbird. We are drawn maybe to earlier wars very easily. This gets lost in the shuffle. And I think to look at an aviator in these very early days of flight, somebody who's freezing up there, has the experience you just described from his letters, is so important. He's one of the first aviators ever. Imagine all the centuries that we looked up at the sky and wished that we could fly and envied the birds. And he not only manages to fly or volunteers to fly, but to do it in a war where he knows he can get killed, he knows how violent it is, he knows how dangerous it is in the very early days, and he chooses to do it anyway when so many of his peers have chosen to hang back after Woodrow Wilson's first term and pushing isolationism. What makes this young man say, I'm going to leave my comfortable home in California, and I'm not only going to enlist, but I'm going to enlist to fly and risk my life, quite literally, up there in the plane? Yeah, well, that's interesting bunch of questions there. What motivates him? Well, first of all, the, the aviation thing, he'd been bitten by the aviation bug when he was 11 or 12. He'd been over here attending a school in England, actually, for a year, a boarding school where I was uh, lucky enough to give a, a talk recently, Kent College in Canterbury. He and his elder brother, at the end of their year there, were taken on holiday by their father, who was an Episcopal clergyman in New York. And he'd come over to take them at the end of this academic year off on a holiday to Europe. And there they saw Wilbur Wright, who had come 
come over to Europe to demonstrate his model Wright 1 plane. The Kimber boys, Clifford in particular, goggle-eyed, saw Wright demonstrate this at the Le Mans race course in Le Mans in France. When he went back to the United States and the family moved to California, he started building and practicing flying gliders with mixed results. You know, he'd be kind of crashing all the while. And uh, at one stage, there was a death notice put in the paper, somewhat premature about him after one of his spills. But when he got into World War I, it wasn't by any means a given that he would be an aviator. He went initially as a volunteer ambulance serviceman And what motivated him there was, I think, just a sense of duty, that it was a just cause, it was a right cause. He had grown up, uh, his father uh, in in New York had known Theodore Roosevelt before Roosevelt was uh, president when he was the police commissioner for New York. And the two had cooperated on uh, various schemes for law and order to try and keep people off the demon drink and uh, in productive labour and trying to keep families together. He had grown up as a kid after his father had died, had grown up always idolising Theodore Roosevelt, and during the period of the First World War was listening to Roosevelt's entreaties to Wilson to get involved. And so when the opportunity presented itself in the late part of 1916 and early 17 to go off, and even at this stage when America was a non-combatant, to go off to Europe to serve in some capacity, he seized the opportunity. He was going to be part of an initial group from his uh, university at Stanford to go over with the American field service, the old American ambulance. Uh, He was going to go over immediately prior to war being declared. In the end, he didn't go immediately. He did go in a second wave after war was declared in within the few weeks uh, in April of 17 of war being declared. And at this point, he's tasked with carrying over what was then going to be designated as the first official American flag to go to the front in France. They'd got permission from Secretary of War Newton Baker to do so. So he set off in quick order, going ahead of his main troop in order to get across the United States and then get on a steamer off to Liverpool and then through England on to France. But it was a sense of duty. It was a sense of this was the right cause, a just cause. But also we have to think the human factor in here. He's 21. A lot of college lads like him were going off to do this kind of volunteering. It was exciting. It was an adventure. Uh, We can't kind of forget that human aspect of it that you know he thinks he might be missing out if he doesn't go a generation later in europe you had a lot of people who felt the call of going over to serve as ambulance drivers in the spanish civil war because of a cause celebre some people thought that this was the thing that they were made to do and born to do and so he set off And within a few months of of doing his ambulance duty, he thought, well, that's all well and good, but now we are a full participant. I want to get up in the air. In addition to that aerial view, I don't want people to get the idea that an American on the Western Front is just his flying over and looking at what he sees below, because you describe Lieutenant Kimber's letters as giving us 
a vital worm's eye view of the war. It struck me as a perfect metaphor because oftentimes he isn't seeing. He's stuck in the bottom of that ship and he mentions that he doesn't have a window and he can't see from there or when he is on the ground and you have to take cover in a, in a foxhole, dirt all over you. You're certainly not seeing much in front of you. You're closing your eyes many times in terror. When he's up there in that plane and those goggles are frosting over, he's blinded. He's an excellent writer who is going to share things even when he's not seeing. We tend to just share the visual. He lets the photographs do some of that heavy lifting, but he was perceptive enough to describe all the things even when he couldn't see. It wouldn't just be visual. His letters delve into all the feelings that good writing has, right? They tell you, touch on all the senses, smell, taste, hearing, sight, feel, and then the sense of humor and all of those things. He really does have that eye towards writing for history that he's going to use these. It's almost, we could say, looking back, like he's savoring those moments of his life, good and bad, because he was knowing that he was in the moment and he knew enough at his young age to realize, I, I won't remember all of this when I get back. After all this exhaustion, all of this fighting, it's going to be out of my mind. He really is, to me, as many letter writers aren't, conscious of history, conscious of getting in some of those details, and that the reader won't be just his mother. He's not just going to spare his family and the rest of his family the experience he's having. He's giving them a real full experience in these letters. Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, the only time that he sort of kind of in any way sort of spares the blushes or draws in his horns, whatever, is when he's trying to reassure his mother and brothers that, ah, oh, this flying lark, it's really not that dangerous. Trust me, it's fine. You know, nothing bad will happen to me. But yes, everything else is there in all of its details. He doesn't spare himself. That's why I say to people, this reads, you know, his letters and what I hope uh, we've managed to do in the, the editing of them, the, the extracts from them. It's a bit like getting detailed postcards home from Europe of this most unusual of times. We all go on our summer holidays and we send postcards back to our loved ones. And some postcards, I would have to say, are better than others. Some people actually say things in them other than I am here, you are not, the weather is good. In this case, he actually does give us a detailed picture, as you say, what he sees, what he smells, what the overall sensory experience is. And he's lifting the lid on that for us as he takes us not just onto the battlefield, but we'll see normal daytime, wartime Paris where a lot of life is going on normally. He goes off on vacation down to the uh, the Côte d'Azur, and uh, he's there he is in Nice, and he's in Monte Carlo. And um, so life is going on in the midst of all this. He is able to actually get that little flavour of France 1718 back at us 100 years on and it's like as if we're able to just to dip in here and dip in there and just immerse ourselves in it. Do you find that readers are doing that, that they're reading it in pieces? Not, It's certainly not a popcorn book. It's not a beach read where you're going to race through it on a flight and forget it by the time your plane reaches its destination. Do you find, because of the weight of the subject matter and the importance of it and the details, people can just pick it up in little parts and read a little bit and then maybe come back to it after they've completed some task? I consciously advise people to do just that because I think sometimes people will find 
the history book a little bit um, meaty and challenging and that it can have this effect of you see a mighty tomb that sits by your bedside and then you you haven't really got the, the, the strength or resolve to pick it up. I wanted to write this and I wanted people to read it in an almost episodic way. The whole tells you the whole of the story, but I think that you can dip in and dip out and see him at these different points of his service and his life and his experience. And I've, I've, they're short chapters. They are all themed. They're all given a title. So you can, even from the title of the chapter, you'll be able to get some flavor of maybe what it's about. But yes, I think it's the kind of thing that people shouldn't regard as so challenging that it's not to be picked up. It is a history book, but it's a story and it's a human story. And around the edges of it, we can see and get a flavour of the overall conflict, if not directly through his experience, uh, through his eyes, then through the narrative that we're hoping to tell in the course of the book, the challenges faced by the United States at the time and the commanders. One of the, for instance, facets of that would be the amount of time that once he is trained, that Kimber spends kicking his heels, waiting for his first big show. And he wants to get his own squadron. He wants to get his own plane. He wants to get his, he wants to get out to the front. And he's very frustrated that he's not able to do that. And that is echoed by, or is caused by, the fact that there were service of supply problems at the time. And the war, the United States part in the conflict was being argued over by allied leaders precisely where, when, and how the US forces of Pershing's American Expeditionary Force, where would they fight? What would they do? Pershing was under immense pressure from the Allies to just send a regiment here, a regiment there, parcel them up and have them fight in the various British and French armies on the front. And Pershing was determined that he was in fact going to put together a fully fledged army, American army of his own and fight on America's own behalf alongside the Allies. The US Air Service being part of that was subject to all of the problems of organization and of supply and of role where they would go and where they would fight. And so our young friend Kimber ends up First of all, kicking his heels, then acting as a ferryman as he would ferry planes around the front to frontline units. Then he served for a period with the French Air Service in one of their escadrille or squadrons before finally landing his gig with a US Aero Squadron, the, the 22nd. So it is a long burn for him. And so you can dip in and dip out of it. And you can pick and choose when you choose to read it and what you choose to read. And you mentioned him being reported dead. As I recall from reading the book, which is a couple months ago now, his mother sees that in the paper. Is that right? 
That's right. It was printed in one of the local papers Oof. in and around Berkeley at the time. I think she found it all, in retrospect, amusing <laughs> because he just came home uh, looking somewhat bedraggled and annoyed the fact that his wonderful balsa wood creation was now matchwood. <laughs> but but I think that it was it was a you know a little sign of things to come. For instance, and in later years when he's uh, on the front and she's receiving letters saying, "Don't worry about." this. It's absolutely safe. I will come home in one piece. I think that she takes that with a pinch of salt. Have you ever were a Boy Scout or ever did any whittling with the balsa wood when you were a young person? You can imagine trusting your life to that stuff. You barely do the little planes or the little propeller driven by a rubber band that we used to make back in the Boy Scouts. Not real sturdy stuff. I mean, wood alone, we expect something steel that's in the air today. And if listeners go to the Sagamore Hill National Historic Site on Long Island, they'll find the former home of Ted Roosevelt Jr., a hero in both world wars, is now part of the museum, part of the historic site that remembers his father, President Theodore Roosevelt. One of the artifacts there is a piece of a plane that Quentin Roosevelt piloted until a German ambush shot him down, unfortunately, and cost him his life. The Germans did bury him with full honors, which is tough to read in history. You just wonder a little bit what it, what it was all for. Why, why this spark when there's honor treated on both sides to the wounded and the dead? And I think that ambiguity is something that makes all these people come alive. What was the technology of that plane? You just mentioned the balsa wood. Talk briefly about that. How far is Kimber's plane from the very first one at Kitty Hawk? Well, in the course of the war, these planes did evolve markedly. And so, yes, whilst we're talking about things which are made of wood and stiffened painted canvas. There were also metal struts and wires. There obviously was the increasing power and capability of the engines, the big metal engines put into them. So they weren't exactly, you know, spit and sawdust and, and you know, held together by elastic bands. They were getting increasingly sophisticated and nimble in the case of Kimber, you know, he was he was a fighter pilot, and fighter pilots were there essentially because aviation, in its whole, was still regarded as a tool for observation and reconnaissance. It wasn't at that stage used in a strategic capacity as a weapon of first choice. So, as a fighter pilot, you were literally being used to guard on patrols those people who were doing observation reconnaissance work. They had to be increasingly nimble and fast to be able to outmaneuver their rivals who would often be um, sitting above them or in some cases below them, ready to see if in the course of an attack, if some ones of their number can be separated from the rest of their pack, singled out and shot down. So you've got various tactics being, well, you have the development of the planes themselves, but you have a whole variety of, of tactics then being evolved by the various allied air forces and by the German air force to try to actually counteract whatever the enemy was doing. If I look, as I was mentioning before we started recording this, and which you've already alluded to, going along um, in Britain here to RAF Duxford Museum, and I see in the same hangar 
50 years apart, the SPAD 13 plane that Kimber was flying, and I see the Blackbird reconnaissance aircraft, which looks like a stealth bomber. It's black, it's titanium, it's fearsome, very impressive looking machine. Only 50 years apart, these two. But even in the course of go back to 1917 and 1918, even in the course of that war, we were seeing the evolution of planes so that by the time you get to the end of it, they were a quantum leap ahead in technological terms to how they'd begun. One brief family story, my wife's family, her grandfather, Private James William Mainwaring, had a similar reports of his death being greatly exaggerated during the Great War. They reported him dead because he, too, was an ambulance driver. He traded a shift with another driver, and just by the luck of the draw, the artillery shell hit. There was nothing left there to identify. And they looked at the record, and he was supposed to be the ambulance driver. They reported back home to Canada that he had been killed. They held a funeral for him and everything and mourned him and buried it and put up the headstone. And then one day his brother is standing at a train station in Montreal. And who does he see across the train platform? <laughs> but there's his brother home. So <laughs> those stories are nice. Maybe, maybe it keeps you a little bit uh, sane among all this that sometimes somebody can make it even even when they've been reported dead. Well, that was I found in the in the course of of writing the book. You not only come to know him. I, I would hope that anyone who wanted to read the book would find the same. That you come to know him as he changes, as he evolves. He's only twenty one, twenty two when he dies. Most of the people listening to this may be over the age of twenty one. We've all been there. We've all made the kind of happy mistakes along the way in the course of our lives growing up. You see him changing and maturing as a person. But similarly, you see his friends. You get to know some of his friends. And then you see these friends one by one, either in training or then in combat being killed. And it is very sobering. And it is something that uh, there's a almost binary nature to it that some of these people who survived would go on to successful military or business careers. There might be senior brass in later years in the military, or they may be the CEOs of some companies, or they may be dead age 21 with no children to mourn them. And it's nice to be able, through a book like this, to be able to record these people as they were in their heyday and be able to give them just a little glimpse out to be able to say hello to us. But it's a sad aspect to be witness to something where you see somebody full of life and full of, of hope and promise and valour, but sticking to their task and going through with it all some of them not to come out the other end. We're speaking with Patrick Gregory, co-author of An American on the Western Front, the First World War Letters of Arthur Clifford Kimber, 1917 to 1918. You can visit him online at AmericanOnTheWesternFront.com or at that Twitter account, American on the WF. Journal of Military History writes, quote, an American on the Western Front is both historically valuable and deeply moving. Patrick Gregory and Elizabeth Nurser are to be commended for bringing this lost aviator back to life in an exceptionally well-researched and well-illustrated volume. Patrick, you talked there about Lieutenant Kimber's evolution over the course of the book. 
when you first meet him and he's just talking about the joy of flying, the joy of his life, really, flying like a bird. He likens the artillery below, even when he gets to the war, to it looks like the fireworks on the 4th of July, which is something that the legendary Yankee Yogi Berra said when he's there landing on D-Day. He's also a very young man. He's coming across the channel to go try to liberate France. And he's standing there looking and he says, it looks like the fireworks at Coney Island until a wiser, older (laughs) soldier tells him, get your head down. You're going to get it blown off by those fireworks. (laughs) And this is the, the case. Kimber starts out like that. And then eventually, as you read through the book, there's another passage where he's clearly lost that starry-eyed look. The blasts are no longer beautiful in the air. And he actually says, people think of it over here as maybe that's just a 4th of July fireworks, perhaps forgetting what he had written earlier about it himself, the younger version of himself. And he talks about being shot down out of the sky like an eagle, that that would be the way to go because the trenches are, that's where the real suffering and the dying is. What do you hope readers will take from that evolution as you've really given him the memoir that he wanted to write. It's taken a 100 years. He didn't get to complete it and compile it himself. But what do you hope that modern readers will learn from that evolution? That people can and will evolve at their own pace, in their own way, in their own time. Maybe that's an accelerated process in his case, because he goes over there, I think, uh, I'll let the reader decide for him or herself, but I think he goes over there slightly with not a superior attitude, but he is kind of uh, quite proud. Uh, he comes from a um, background where he's, um, he probably had a domineering mother and um, that he was, if not better than everyone else, then he certainly held himself in in some regard. And then he, in the course of this, learns that there are many different people in the world, and they've all got their own strengths and weaknesses, but they're all good, for for the vast majority of the time, all good people to be rubbed along with. It takes many people to to make a world. I'd like people just to see him in the round and see his see his development as a person because I think we've all been there to one st- extent or another growing up. We we change our views with different circumstances and we hope we would like to become more well-rounded at the end of it, but it's just in the force of circumstance how we react to the challenges that life throws up at us. In the case of, of him, it is a, it's a rather stark landscape that he's walked into. Fascinating. It's in technicolor, but it's also terribly, terribly dangerous. As you say, what starts off some of these sights and sounds when he's in the champagne sector in the late spring, early summer of 1917 as an ambulance driver, to then spin on from that to the cold realities of being a serviceman and seeing those people die around you. He does talk always, you you mentioned the word eagle, he always does talk about, he's very conscious of being an eagle up in the air and he's in love with flying and he wants to get that joy across to his family and I hope it comes across to the reader about being up there. He says, you know, the, the world is below but you are in another world challenging the eagle in his domain and he feels perfect peace up there. But by the same token, as you say, when it comes to the business end of the war, he knows that he may 
quote-unquote, be shot down like a wounded eagle. His only hope, as he says, is that when his number is up, if his number is up, that he actually does it in, in the heat of battle and that he is shot down in the course of taking on the Bosch, as he calls them, the Hun, and that he doesn't kind of, he's not wasting his time being killed in practice or dying for no good reason. He actually wants to uh, take the fight to the enemy quite determinedly. Dying as Quentin Roosevelt, when he was shot down by the Germans, his father says, his mother and I are proud that he got a chance to go to the front and show what stuff was in him, what the stuff that he was made of. And so that's what he seems to want here. And you talk about an evolution for Kimber. As you were speaking there, I jotted down, okay, you start off in the champagne sector and you end up in no man's land. What what more of an evolution for an experience in a war could you have than those two names are speak pretty starkly if you Asked me where I'd rather go, no man's land or champagne sector, even though it's obviously not <laughs> it's not as if he's having it bubbly poured over his head, but just just the names of it kind of gives an idea of how I feel that evolution. Everyone thinks they're gonna go over there and well, we're gonna lick the hun and we're gonna be home by mm. Christmas. And you'd think we would have learned by now to stop saying we're gonna be home by Christmas, but we we don't seem to. Everyone promises us a quick war. Whereas in Winston Churchill's words, when he was warning about the Second Boer War, he said, always remember when you're promised a quick war that there wouldn't be any war at all if the other fellow didn't think maybe he had a chance. So this is what he experiences. He experiences America's own or reflects America's own disillusionment and and hard lesson here on the world stage that it isn't going to be over quickly. It isn't all going to be champagne and parades and fireworks. It's hard fighting and dying to be done by young men. That's right. And and he, he knew Quentin Roosevelt. Uh, he trained with Roosevelt at the uh, Caso Gunnery School and liked Roosevelt, thought he was, he said, a very democratic fellow who didn't have any uh, airs and graces about him. But I think he was a little bit less bearing of him when it came to assessing his aviation skills, because I think that he thought that Roosevelt was a little bit too daredevil for his own good. His letters are time and again suffused with this notion of these flying lessons that he's trying to get across to himself, to his family, to maybe a mythical reader who's not reading him at this stage to actually say, you've got to keep your discipline. You actually have to keep focused. You can't actually break away from your chums. You're there to do a job. You stay in formation. You stay in the pack. It's not about heroes. So the grim reality that he has is based on the hard realisation that we're either in a perfect world, we'll get out of this one alive, but that's actually right now not our focus. Our focus is taking this to the enemy. And if that means taking on mortal danger along the way, then so be it. If we're going to do the job, we're going to have to do it right. and We're going to actually have to keep our discipline about ourselves. And be part of that team, which is something you write in an American on the Western Front about Arthur Clifford Kimber, you say he's not a huge pivotal figure. He's not one of the main leaders. He's one doughboy among many. That certainly was pressure on Quentin Roosevelt to stand out. You use the word discipline and following the rules, staying in formation. That was not what, frankly, he was raised to be. That's not the Roosevelt way. It's to go off, lead from the front 
fly into danger, unfortunately, as he does, and it costs him his life into an ambush instead of staying in formation. While the man in the title, though, may not be a central figure in the American war, he does meet one who is. Former President Theodore Roosevelt is trying to raise another Rough Rider division himself to go over there. And what a great cameo that was in the book to come across his meeting with TR and he describes it and TR also autographs his book in the middle of this preparedness fight that he's making against Wilson to be ready for the war and maybe dissuade it because we have force of arms he meets him he says hey if I do get this new regiment over in France you come with me Kimber be sure to call my secretary it's not just a lark it's really great the way that he describes it he says he gives him specific instructions mention your father talk to my secretary of course that's never to be but TR autographs a book for him and I wonder what became of that book in the family history that is a book which I think went the way of certain of his possessions over the years. I have not laid eyes on that. We have got the original letters as written, and then we've got the ones that are typed up. But we've got the photostat of the inscription in his notebook that was included in an original little volume about Kimber that was published back in 1919-1920 called The First Flag. It was mainly about the circumstances of bringing the flag and there were a couple of brief snippets of a letter to a couple of photographs. But it was a question of us then digging out and properly editing and sifting through all the letters. But that was a, a letter which people can see online. They can see it on the American on the Western Front com website, or they can just put in his name, Arthur Clifford Kimber, and it'll come up in various guises. And they'll, they should be able to come across the inscription, Good luck to Arthur Kimber, <laughs> with the date of May the 11th, 1917. And that was, it was an important date, actually, because those days in May of 17 were when America had obviously just gone into the war by about a month. And we had the Allied war delegations coming over to America from Britain and France to try to exhort political and business leaders and also the general public to put in a big supreme effort of will and of manpower to actually get this job done, get your boys over and get all the kit and caboodle to go with them, the men materiel. And there were big parades in New York on the 9th and then again on the 11th of May where the uh, first of all Marshal Joffre of France and secondly the British Foreign Secretary Balfour were paraded down the streets of Manhattan and on the in-between day we had Kimber and his American Field Service flying their flag and marching down Fifth Avenue but on the 11th Roosevelt uh, was in his offices in Manhattan when Kimber knocked on the door with his mother who'd accompanied him to New York to go see the great man, his great hero. <laughs> and that was the one thing, apart from all of, his, all of his own personal advice, there's the one thing he wanted to do was get an inscription to send him on the way. So it was scrawled in the front of one of his old Stanford writing books and his proudest possession. 
You don't have it anymore? It is a goner. And yeah. um, unless Elizabeth tells me to the contrary and she can somehow magic it up from somewhere, but I think that's long gone. <laughs> yeah. I guess you wouldn't know it would just look like a textbook unless you opened it up and looked inside, right? You wouldn't have known that it was a signed book. So I guess that, well, maybe someone someday, let's hope, maybe someone donated to a library and someday someone will open it and return it to you. The flag, though, we do know where the flag is. The flag is there at Stanford, correct? That's right. I would love Stanford to get it out and dust it down. They were kind enough to take it out of the special collection storage for us to uh, photograph for the book. And so uh, you will see it on the front of the book the, that you've you've talked about, Kimber staring out at us, and that's a composite of his face then and the flag now. And the flag went on when the American field service and the ambulance service was taken over by the United States Army Ambulance Service. It went on to record many different campaigns along the way and you can see the photograph of the flag on the front cover bedecked with the various battle honours and ribbons of the time of the various offensives. But Stanford have got the flag and they look after it very carefully and very dutifully and it's kept in pristine condition. Unfortunately, they don't ever put it on public display, so it's one of the uh, one of the great secrets of the world hmm. that it is there but never seen, which I, it always strikes me as a bit of a shame. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like the Shroud of Turin that they're just keeping it hidden away like an artifact, and it's too bad because it's living history. You look at it and you say. I would like to be able to go see that. That's the kind of thing. You go to a museum and you think of all the history behind it, not to mention it will encourage people to meet Arthur Clifford Kimber. But I guess people have their ways, and it's better than them leaving it out in the rain, right, flying it uh, in front of a house, I guess. No, absolutely. At least it's preserved. They, they've, you know, as a special archives and collections uh, unit, they've certainly um, archived it and they've certainly looked after it. But, yeah, in terms of illustrating history, I think it would be, you know, a lovely symbol of of, you know, America literally going out as it was for the very first time, the beginning of the American century, America going out into the world for the first time as a fully-fledged political and military power. And this is the flag that they flew that uh, went to the front and was presented on the, the 4th of June of 1917, nine days before Pershing arrived with the first contingent of his American expeditionary force. And it would be a nice symbol to be able to try and illustrate it was America did at that time. Well, let's hope that there are many people that petition them that there's so much interest in it that after reading an American on the Western Front, people will have renewed interest and they'll want to see that. And maybe we will get to hear that it's publicly displayed. We've reached the 11th month of the 11th day of the 11th hour, so to speak. But I didn't want to sign off without giving you a chance to make your pitch Professor Andrew Wiest notes the remarkable literacy of the millions who fought in the Great War and the massive record they therefore left behind. Why should listeners pick up an American on the Western Front to get the view of this single doughboy who wasn't a big title guy, he distinguished himself with his service, but he's not one of the big set-piece men, he's not a Pershing, he's not a Roosevelt. Why is he compelling? Why should people who haven't picked up the book yet get to know him? What he does, he gives us an opportunity to see Europe afresh 
1917 and 1918. He takes us with him on his shoulder. He drops us into the middle of war-torn Europe, and we're able to experience life alongside him with him and his colleagues as they face the challenges, first of dealing with the wounded to try to make sense of a destroyed uh, landscape of northeastern France, to then get trained to go out themselves to do precisely the same thing, to actually try to finish the war off for once and for all, which incidentally they do succeed in doing. But it is him that is just taking us by the hand and bringing us along on the journey. And it is an opportunity to uh, see something that we would not otherwise see. I am very glad, Patrick Gregory, that you handed that hand to me, that you introduced me here to Arthur Clifford Kimber in An American on the Western Front. We went a little bit over the time we'd budgeted today, but it was just so great to hear from you and bring him to life again. I hope readers will want to take that same ride, will want to meet this singular young man with such a way with words and experiences. I really thank you for sharing this eagle-eyed perspective with us. I wish you the best of luck with the book and sharing the story of Lieutenant Kimber and his service in the Great War with a whole new generation, people who will not have heard this ever before in the hundred years since the guns fell silent. Thank you very much indeed, Dean. It's been a pleasure. Again, the book is An American on the Western Front, the first World War letters of Arthur Clifford Kimber, 1917 to 18. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate via the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Patrick Gregory for joining us all the way from London and for introducing us to Arthur Clifford Kimber's Eagle's Eye View and Worm's Eye View of America's involvement in the Great War's closing year. Enjoy more of this special story online at AmericanOnTheWesternFront.com or on Twitter at AmericanOnTheWF. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, on Instagram at the History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. And don't forget, we have a great stash of World War I authors in our archives for your enjoyment. There's so much we can learn from men like Arthur Clifford Kimber that makes us better people ourselves and helps us understand our place in the great human story. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next flight into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Standing alone, 
I saw Georgie Cone somewhere on Long Acre Square. Crowds passed him by, I heard Georgie sigh, nobody noticed him there. I asked him why he didn't smile, he said in that old Cohen style, Oh, New York ain't New York anymore, how I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor, where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Remember, he said, when I first hit Broadway, New York was New York and the white way was gay. There were Sherry's and Murray's and Rector's, you know, the Claridge and Churchill's and Delmonico. Music and laughter, and the prices were right. A ten dollar bill meant a wonderful night. And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared When the newsboys yelled extra, war is declared But the hand that held glasses of wine in the air Were the first to hold guns when I rode over there The boys won the war and came home from the fight The last night on Broadway was almost as nice but ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to meet. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.